to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Sebastian Fact. Sebastian is defense expert for the Friedrich Naumann Foundation and also runs the FNF Hub for Security Political Dialogue. And after our conversation, I'll introduce you to some of the events organized by ELF during this month of July. I'm here with Sebastian Fact. Sebastian, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Hi, Ricardo. Thank you so much for inviting me. Before we get into today's topic of conversation, because I want you to come to the podcast uh, again to talk a little bit about some other thing that is related to the ocean, but has a little to do with surfboards and waves. But before that, we're going to talk a little about a little bit about uh, Europe defense and security. But even before that, I want you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. Uh, well, my name is Sebastian. I currently work and live in Brussels for the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. And I used to be a naval officer in the German Navy for 12 years. Um, during that time, I, uh, I studied. I also sailed on a mine hunter, um, moved up the ranks to a deputy commander of a mine hunting vessel and uh, eventually did uh, public affairs for the German military in Berlin during uh, interesting times, which was in uh, 2014 to 16, when Russia annexed Crimea and so on, and the public interest in security and defense uh, significantly rose. Um, after those 12 years, I was confronted with the choice to either become a professional officer or uh, be free. And I chose to be free, and even more consequentially, I decided to join the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom as their defense expert. Let's go back a little bit in time. So you are in a mine hunting vessel, and then the Russia-Crimea situation explodes. So how was that time? Well, um, when uh, the, the annexation of Crimea happened, I already worked in, uh, in public affairs. Um, and that was quite an interesting uh, moment because before, when I went to public events in Berlin, I could tell that people had no real interest in security and defense politics. So often they would invite me and just say, say something on defense, but they had no clear idea in mind what they wanted to discuss. And after 2014, there was not only the annexation of Crimea, there was also the Ebola crisis in Africa where the military played a significant role um, helping out. There was the, uh, the IS conquering territory in Iraq and Syria. So all those events contributed to a significantly higher interest in security and defense. And I could tell that because the, the demand for presentations and discussions became much more precise. And the, the appreciation for someone who would walk through town in uniform also rose, and you could feel that. Mm, very interesting. Did that um, ease up a little bit, so things changed during this last years, or that appetite is still there? I think that appetite is still there, but what is also there is a sense of confusion, uh, because uh, with the, the military preparations that the German Bundeswehr and other European militaries had, were difficult to understand and their, the, the successes they had were also not really clear. If you look at Afghanistan or Iraq, 
Um, I mean, someone would also be, be right to, to a certain extent, to consider these missions as failures, because these states are still not stabilized. So I think people wonder, uh, do military interventions abroad make sense at all? And what do we need our military for? Or how can we actually deploy our military in a way that makes sense? Um, I asked Sebastian to come here to talk a little bit about European defense and security, and maybe we can go a little bit into a possible uh, European army. Uh, this is not new. Uh, 24 of October of 1950, the Pleven Plan, with uh, that the name of René Pleven, was drafted also by Jean Monnet, and at the time, there are already calls by the creation of a supranational European army. And then, of course, the European defense community was created in 1952. So this is not new, Sebastian. This has been in European uh, thinking for some time. Oh, you're absolutely right. And um, since then, we've failed at every single occasion to make something out of those ideas for, for different reasons. Um, and it's interesting that only now, after, well, 2016 and, and 17, uh, we are proceeding uh, with that idea for the first time ever, I would say. Um, the, the, the indications for that are that um, the, the PESCO has been activated. PESCO stands for a Permanent Structured Cooperation of Defense, 25 years member states have committed to um, raise their defense expenditures every year and to cooperate much more closely on defense. So that is a, a huge milestone in European defense. And it was mostly initiated by two shocks, external shocks, which uh, were uh, the, the, which were Donald Trump becoming U.S. Mm -hmm. president. Mm -hmm. um, Uh, triggering fears that NATO and the security guarantee by the US might not be forever, uh, and Brexit, um, and the Brexit referendum. I mean, Brexit is not yet real, uh, but the, the idea that it might become real soon um, has shaken our belief that the European Union will, will last forever and be very stable. So I think those shocks have triggered an, a general motivation to, to be more serious about European defense. But I'm going to uh, stay a little bit in here because you mentioned PESCO. There's also the Cuban Security and Defense Policy. So there are some things working already. There are some uh, initiatives and some organizations on. Do you think that when people say, well, we need to go further than this, do you agree with that then? I understand. I absolutely agree. I mean, when I said that um, CSDP or PESCO were milestones. They are only milestones compared to what we did in the past, but there are still very small steps on a very long way to go. Um, and I think the example of Belgium and the Netherlands is a good one. I think that uh, all European countries should do what Belgium and the Netherlands do. Um, to give you an example, Uh, those two countries have decided to share uh, the logistics and the training facilities around their navies, which means they have a common naval command, they have a common naval training school, uh, and they um, have a division of labor, which means that uh, Belgium runs the, the mine hunters and the Netherlands runs the frigates. 
and they've even decided to buy their equipment together. And this means that the entry cost to run your military equipment for logistics, training, command, is, is being shared. And this makes those two navies or this Dutch-Belgian navy much more efficient. And I think this is the way we should go. So it means that we're not starting from scratch. There are already blueprints of how this thing works. Because one of the questions is, is this a new, like if we do move to a European army, is this a new force has to be done from, you know, from the early process? Could it be a contribution for different member states? What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's a very good question because so far the European army is a notion that has very different meanings. And that is also why everyone endorses it. The left endorses it because they think it's a first step to having no army. And the liberals endorse it because they think it will be more effective and a pro-European instrument. And the conservatives endorse it because they think it will be a more powerful army in total. Um, so uh, we have a bipartisanship then. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, what is not entirely clear is if we should have like the 28 EU member states armies plus a European army or if the European army at some point will be the product of those 28 uh, EU member states. Um, this is really not, not clear, but I think um, it's like with the European Union as a whole. Uh, sometimes we talk about the United States of, of Europe, but um, we instead of working towards that goal, we, we just uh, continue to take one step after the other. And I think that is what we should also do in the military domain. And that is why I think that this regional model that we see with Belgium and the Netherlands, that we also see with the Baltic states who share a common airspace and who also share some of their naval capabilities, I think that is the way forward to have more of those regional integrations um, and then maybe at some point we can think about having a major European integration of forces. I'm going to exactly continue on that point. So we imagine that we do have a regi regional, regional integration from Portugal all the way to Estonia. What, mm. are, what kind of military force are we talking here? Like, for example, in terms of soldiers, in terms of equipment, material, aircrafts, uh, 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 ships? What would be, in your idea, uh, a sensible option here? Mm. Uh, well, the, the instruments you want to have depend on the tasks you want to fulfill. And so far we have a division of labor, which means that the territorial defense of Europe is a task of NATO, which means a task of the United States of America together with um, their European allies. And all other tasks like comprehensive security and crisis management abroad, uh, naval operations around Europe, those are rather European tasks. Um, and one question will be if we can keep up that division of labor and if we can still trust the US, let's say in 20 years time, will the Americans be willing to defend Lithuania in 20 years time? And it will depend on that question if we need um, a, a huge amount of hardware capabilities to, to deter Russia or other conventional enemies, 
or if it will be sufficient to continue to focus on on crisis management abroad. All right, exactly. That was uh, the next question I was going to make you, and that is some people defend that you should be more like of a defensive uh, structure, crisis management, conflict prevention, peacekeeping. But from your words, I do understand from your opinion that there should be also a second uh, layer to it and that, and that more of a deterrent uh, influence. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, deterrence, I mean, you want to avoid any war at any cost. And one of the best ways to, to achieve that is deterrence. And that also includes nuclear deterrence. Um, if you have nuclear enemies, or if you have nuclear, if you have countries that challenge the order and that do have nuclear capabilities like Russia, you need nuclear capabilities yourself. Um, so I think deterrence is important. You have to make uh, an attack on you expensive. Um, but also when we talk about crisis management, this also has a defensive element. I mean, if we talk about trying to stabilize countries like Libya or in the Sahel region, uh, this is very much in, in the European interest as well. I mean, we would like to see those countries flourish and stabilize uh, so that they are no longer a source of, of security threats. Who has the mandate for uh, some kind of European force? So we're getting a little bit to the political side of it right now. How do you see this kind of organization dealing, and we'll, we'll leave later, NATO for later because I want to talk to you about that, but who makes those political decisions? How does it relate to the United Nations? Do you have any idea on that? Well, if you look at the European Union, we're not very far yet. And to give you an example, we have the um, European battle groups, which are supposed to be a rapid uh, intervention force. Um, and these European battle groups have existed for more than a decade already, but they've never been deployed. Um, the responsibility for the battle groups uh, lies with the member states in a rotating scheme. Mm -hmm. And when, the, uh, when crisis erupted in the Central African Republic in the second half of 2013, uh, the, it was the British turn to run the battle group, and the battle group was supposed to be deployed. And the British Prime Minister David Cameron said, well, we will not deploy our troops uh, because we are having a discussion about leaving the European Union. And if we deploy our troops on behalf of the EU, uh, the EU will be even less popular than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was wait. a political calculation completely. It was a political calculation and he was not willing to pay the cost and to take the risk that's associated with such an operation. Um, and in the first half of 2014, it was Greece. And you can imagine that Greece in the first half of 2014 wasn't very keen on uh, running a military operation either because it had other financial problems to deal with. So um, eventually, until today, the EU battle groups were never deployed, uh, which proves the point that there is no, no actor on the European level who has any mandate. It's purely the member states. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, we also need to respect that in most member states, it's Parliament who decides on, on the deployment of the military, 
And if the mandate was to be transferred to a European level, we would have to make sure that it is uh, it, it stays uh, a democratic decision because this decision is so important. It's not only about the costs of an operation, it's also about the risk to your citizens that you deploy. So that, that power should somehow then be with the European Parliament. So even if there was a uh, European defense minister or any European body that uh, was in charge of a European army, uh, I would still like to see the European Parliament as the, the most democratic European body um, to, um, to, to be responsible for the final deployment decision. Uh, that's a great point because that I have a question for you and that is what do you think will be a relationship between those political decision makers and then a command cent central command of this uh, military structure? Well, I mean, we can look at at NATO for that. I mean, at NATO, we, we do have a command structure that works strategically and, and, and tactically and runs operations. Uh, but uh, if NATO plans any operations, you would still need uh, the, the approval, the unequivocal approval by, by all members in the North Atlantic Council, which I guess equals the European Council, um, and then uh, you still need the approval of all those parliaments of, of the countries where parliament has such rights, like Germany, for example. And uh, I think this would probably also be the situation if we had a European command uh, or uh, any European units. Let's linger here for a little bit because you're mentioning the battle groups are ready to go and now you just mentioned also and of course I totally agree and that is this would also be a decision by the member states and could involve parliament. Do you think there could be like an intermediate solution where you can have like a rapid um, response group but at the same time things will go through the political process because now and now and then we do see that uh, uh, United Nations, they do have that problem to solve. Yeah, well, the difference is that with the EU battle groups at the moment, we need to keep in mind that the actual soldiers and units that are in the EU battle groups are mostly from only one country, because the, 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 the integration of European armed forces uh, only goes as, as low in the ranks as to a battalion. So um, all those, let's say, British or Greek soldiers that would be deployed, they, they would have a European flag on their sleeves, but uh, they would still be British or Greek soldiers. So the main decision would remain with uh, the British or Greek government. Um, what we were lacking at that time and what would be desirable, first of all, is a cost-sharing mechanism. So that means if it's your turn, to provide troops, and if you have to deploy them, then other member states should, of course, share the cost of, of, of the operation that you have to run in the name of the European Union. Mm -hmm. Could you have, like, a supranational uh, battle groups, meaning, like, for example, with voluntary um, soldiers that would enroll, and they could be paid directly by the this military, this new military structure, could that be a solution? 
Oh, that's an interesting idea. So then you would have to have a European recruitment office where you could directly apply to be a European soldier. Um, maybe it's not too far-fetched because you have the, by now you have a European diplomatic service as well. Um, so why not have that with, uh, with soldiers? I would still be skeptical because right now in the EU we have 28 military structures and adding a 29th structure to that would make the whole system even less efficient. So um, to me, the idea of fusioning existing structures is much more appealing than uh, adding another one. Yes, that's a good point. All right, now we go, we get to one of the questions that um, comes up many times, and that is, well, NATO already exists. NATO, uh, it is true that the United States of America do have a big, um, a big role in NATO, but also uh, European countries are there and they uh, take care of it, not only of the, of the decision making, but also of the operations. Why do we need an extra uh, military force? How do you respond to that? Well, that's a good point. And I mean, uh, officials uh, keep pointing out that there's only a single set of forces. So if Portugal has, let's say, four frigates, they can only operate either for NATO or for Europe. So if we talk about those organizations, there's, of course, always a huge overlap, and we're talking about the same forces. But we talk about different um, organizations um, when it comes to strategic interests. Um, I think it is, I mean, the, the, the origin of European security and defense uh, policy comes from the wars in Yugoslavia. And it was frustrating to see for the Europeans that they had to rely on American help to, uh, to engage in a conflict that happened right next to their own door. And I think it is in the interest of both the Europeans and the Americans, that Europeans are are able to cope with with such situations themselves. Um, it's always important to stress, I guess, that those organizations are not designed to compete with each other, but to fulfill very different tasks. Right now we have this division of labor uh, where NATO takes care of, of territorial defense and the European Union does not have and doesn't strive to have the command structure which would be necessary to um, to take over territorial defense of Europe from from NATO. The interesting situation now is that the the general level of trust in the U.S. as an ally is decreasing, and uh, the further this this level of trust decreases, the more likely it becomes that the, the European Union will be more independent. But as the European Union becomes more independent, the U.S. might also feel less obliged to still take care for European security. So this is kind of a, a strange relationship we have there. Let me uh, give a scenario to you. So in one year from now, we'll have a more sane and rational uh, president of the United States of America and things uh, go back to the status quo. Will you still keep defending the creation of a U.S. Uh, sorry, of a European military force. I I absolutely would because I think that the um, the uncertainty about the continuity of NATO doesn't only come from Donald Trump. I mean, already now, 
NATO is the longest standing military alliance in history. It, it would be really great for us if it continued to exist, but we must acknowledge that um, the world is changing. The United States are still the most powerful military and economically country in the world, but we have challenges like China and India. Um, German uh, political scientist Herfried Münkler says the next system is going to be a five-power system, like the one we had um, a few hundred years ago, a pentarchy. Um, and in such a system, uh, the United States would have to pick their priorities. Right now, they have a global ambition. They have bases all around the world. They are defending their interests in the Pacific, in the Indian Ocean, in the Atlantic Ocean. But uh, as soon as those competitors grow relatively stronger, the United States might have to pick priorities. And we cannot be entirely sure that Europe will be among those priorities. So we are... I think it, it is wise for us to be more independent and to, to be able, if it's necessary, to defend ourselves. Totally agree. Meaning that I will have I will need to have you for another podcast. Not only are we going to be talking about surfing, but we also need to talk <laughs> about China and India. I see that now. All right, we're getting to the end of our conversation. Uh, do you want to leave our listeners with one last uh, thought? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I mean, uh, what, what we do here mainly is we run a network of defense experts from pro-European and liberal parties in Europe. That is always interesting because the first thing we try to figure out together is what is liberal defense and security policy. And we found that it was quite a tough, um, tough question to answer. Um, but what we came up with are two things. Uh, the first thing is, as since liberals are courageous, um, we find that our partners are very willing to cooperate with each other and to trust their partners um, in a European context and to work more close, more closely together in Europe. I think that is one thing that stands out for for liberals uh, to be courageous to dare more European integration and defense. And the other thing is um, we are aware that 1.5 million European soldiers are also 1.5 million European citizens. So um, the, the military is, uh, is a domain where, where many of our citizens work, but also uh, serve and, and put their lives on the line for, for Europe. Um, and so I think we should care a bit more about people than only about tanks, planes, and ships. PESCO consists of 34 projects, and, and 33 of them are about material, actually. Um, and I think we should uh, think more about projects um, that are related to soldiers and to military personnel, because there's a lot of potential, I guess, to increase their rights, to motivate them better, to retain them better in military service, and, and to appreciate their service. And um, those are the two things, I would say, that distinguish the liberals a bit from others. Uh, the, the courage to work closer together in Europe and to focus more on military personnel. Those are some great points to finish our conversation. Sebastian, tell our listeners where they can find your work. Well, you can find uh, the product of our work either on the Friedrich Naumann Foundation website, which is uh, freiheit.org, 
or you can go to our Brussels office website, which is fnf-europe.org. I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ricardo. I'm back, and even before we go into this week's ELF events, let me tell you that you can also follow us now on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating. This way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. Now for some of the events organized by ELF during this month of July. From the 26th to the 28th in Sarajevo, Limec is organizing a seminar called A Liberal Vision for Europe. As usual, to know more about events organized by ELF, you can go to www.liberalforum.eu forward slash events. I will be back soon with more podcasts, but until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>